Long History, Henry Hudson, Voyage 4, Part 9, Base Slanders Against the Master. Hello everyone and welcome to the last part of Henry Hudson's diverse voyages and northern discoveries. Welcome to Long History. If you're new here, this is the place where we take important source documents from history and split them up into chunks of around 10 minutes or so. This is the first draft of history written by the people who took part in the events themselves. We've covered some of the earliest expeditions to explore the United States and the events around the early colonization of the Philippine Islands. And Columbus, Magellan, Francis Drake and Sir Walter Raleigh have also been covered here so there's lots to explore. Now this is the last part of a 25 part series so a new document will be starting soon so don't forget to subscribe so you know when those episodes are released. And we've covered Henry Hudson's four famous journeys in this document, including his attempts to find a route to the Far East via the North in some way from England. But it's now a few episodes since Henry Hudson was abandoned in Hudson Bay by his crew, and in the previous episode those mutineers had made it as far as Ireland. Now this final episode is something of a curiosity. Events are quickly wrapped up when the crew eventually make it home, and then we listen to a couple more points of view. And these points of view include a letter from Iceland which I think was written by Abercook Pritchard. This was before the crew made it to Hudson Bay. And then there's a note by a man called Thomas Widows, who was apparently put into the shallop when the mutiny of Henry Hudson took place. And this was a note found in a desk in the ship which explains some of the events prior to the mutiny. And although it doesn't give us any details about the mutiny itself, does go some way to describe the tension that existed on the ship before the mutiny and puts the blame on Robert Jewett. And as this episode begins, the remaining crew, including Abercock Bridget who wrote this document, are trying to arrange their return to England from Ireland with a man called Weymouth. So this is Henry Hudson, Voyage 4, Part 9, the last part, Base Landers Against the Master. Now as we were beholding to Weymouth for his money, so were we to one Captain Taylor for making of our contracts with Weymouth, by whose means he took a bill for our cable and anchor and for the men's wages, who would not go with us unless Weymouth would pass his word for the same. For they made show that they were not willing to go with us for any wages. Whereupon Captain Taylor swore he would press them, and then, if they would not go, he would hang them. In conclusion, we agreed for £3.10 a man to bring our ship to Plymouth or Dartmouth and to give the pilot £5. But if the wind did not serve, but that they were driven to put into Bristow, they were to have £4.10 a man and the pilot £6. Omitting, therefore, further circumstances, from Beerhaven we came to Plymouth and so to an anchor before the castle and from Plymouth, with fair wind and weather without stop or stay, we came to the Downs, from thence to Gravesend, where most of our men went to shore, and from thence came on this side Erith, and there stopped. Where our master Robert Billet came aboard, and so had me up to London with him, and so we came to Sir Thomas Smith's together. A final note to the text. For as much as this report of Prickett may happily be suspected by some as not so friendly to Hudson, 
who returned with that company which had so cruelly exposed Hudson and his, and, therefore, may seem to lay heavier imputation and rip up occasions further than they will believe. I have also added the report of Thomas Widhouse, one of the exposed company, who ascribeth those occasions of discord to Dewart. I take not on me to sentence, no, not to examine. I have presented the evidence just as I had it. Let the bench censure, hearing with both ears, that which with both eyes they may see in those and these notes, to which I have prefixed his letter to Master Samuel Matcham. <sniffs> Master Matcham, I heartily commend me unto you, etc. I can write unto you no news, though I have seen much, but such as every English fisherman haunting these coasts can report better than myself. We kept our Whitsunday in the northeast end of Iceland, and I think I never fared better in England than we feasted there. They of the country are very poor and live miserably, yet we found therein store of fresh fish and dainty fowl. I myself in the afternoon killed so much fowl as feasted all our company, being three and twenty persons at one time, only with partridges, besides curlew, plover, mallard, teal and goose. I have seen two hot baths in Iceland, and I have been in one of them. We are resolved to try the uttermost, and lie only expecting a fair wind, and to refresh ourselves to avoid the ice, which now is come off the west coasts, of which we have seen whole islands, but, God be thanked, have not been in danger of any. Thus I desire all your prayers for us. From Iceland, the 30th of May, 1610. A note found in the desk of Thomas Widows. Student in the mathematics. He being one of them who was put into the shallop. The 10th day of September, 1610, after dinner, our master called the company together to hear and bear witness of the abuse of some of the company, it having been the request of Robert Dewart that the master should redress some abuses and slanders, as he called them, against this Dewart which thing, after the master had examined and heard with equity what he could say for himself, there were proved so many and great abuses and mutinous matters against the master and action by Dewart that there was danger to have suffered them longer, and it was fit time to punish and cut off farther occasions of the like mutinies. It was proved to his face, first with Bennet Matthew our trumpet, upon our first sight of Iceland, and he confessed that he supposed that in the action would be manslaughter and prove bloody to some. Secondly, at our coming from Iceland, in hearing of the company, he did threaten to turn the head of the ship home from the action, which at that time was by a master wisely pacified, hoping of amendment. Thirdly, it was deposed by Philip Staff, our carpenter, and Ladley Arnold, to his face upon the Holy Bible, that he persuaded them to keep muskets charged and swords ready in their cabins, for they should be charged with shot ere the voyage were over. Fourthly, we being pestered in the eyes, he had used words tending to mutiny, discouragement and slander of the action, which easily took effect in those that were timorous, and had not the master in time prevented, it might easily have overthrown the voyage. 
and now lately being embayed in a deep bay, which the master had desired to see, for some reasons to himself known, his word tended altogether to put the company into a fray of extremity, by wintering in cold, jesting at our master's hope to see Bantam by Candlemas. For these and diverse other base slanders against the master, he was deposed, and Robert Bylet, who had showed himself honestly respecting the good of the action, was placed in his stead the master's mate. Also, Francis Clement, the Botswain, at this time was put from his office, and William Wilson, a man thought more fit, preferred to his place. This man had basely carried himself to our master and to the action. Also, Adrian Muta was appointed Botswain's mate, and a promise by the master that from this day Dewitt's wages should remain to Bylet, and the Botswain's overplus of wages should be equally divided between Wilson and one John King, to the owner's good liking, one of the quartermasters, who had very well carried themselves to the furtherance of the business. Also, the master promised, if the offenders yet behaved themselves henceforth honestly, he would be a means for their good, and that he would forget injuries, with other admonitions. A final note to the text. These things thus premised, touching Hudson's exposing, and God's just judgments on the exposers, as Prickett hath related, whom they reserved as his thought, in hope, by Sir Dudley Diggs his master, to procure their pardon at their return, I thought good to add that which I have further received from good intelligence, that the ship coming aground at Diggs Island in 63 degrees 44 minutes, a great flood came from the west and set them on float. An argument of an open passage from the South Sea to that, and consequently to these seas. The weapons and arts which they saw, beyond those of other savages, are arguments hereof. He which assaulted Prickett in the boat had a weapon broad and sharp indented, of bright steel, such as they use in Java, riveted into a handle of morse tooth. So if we thought that another point of view might clarify what happened with Henry Hudson, I'm afraid we can only be disappointed here. The details, however, seem to refer to that initial disagreement between Hudson and his men, when they had a meeting and tried to agree whether to turn back or not. So at least it shows that there was dissent early on in the voyage. There is also an interesting detail that seems to confirm that Abercook Pritchard was never really part of the mutiny, and was only kept alive because of his contact with this man called Sir Dudley Diggs, who might be able to procure their pardon at their return, as the passage says. There's also that intriguing note that states openly that this report by Abercook Pritchett, or Abercook Prickett, as he's known towards the end, can be seen to be biased against Hudson, and he tries to put the blame for a discord to Dewitt, the man who starved to death on the way back from Canada to England. And also there's that note from Iceland, but it doesn't particularly add anything to the story. So all these further details don't really help us much, in fact they seem to confuse events even more. Perhaps the only clear thing that I can conclude from this is a reminder that these events are written by particular people, who will have their biases, so they all have different takes on events. So that's an intriguing ending to Henry Hudson's voyage, and we don't know Henry Hudson's ultimate fate. 
but we do know that Hudson Bay would eventually get his name, as would Hudson River. So altogether these four journeys have had a rather unique structure, starting off with lots of technicalities about the position of the sun and the weather, then with the most famous explorations of the Hudson River, and in the context of the other three journeys we might have expected the fourth to be more of the same, but there's a sudden twist when everything goes wrong, and the narrative swings in a completely different direction altogether, to become one where we even begin to question the words on the page. So thank you for listening to Henry Hudson's diverse voyages and northern discoveries. As usual, our next episodes will take a short break from these long documents to summarise some of the events of our previous documents. Before you move on, please don't forget to like and subscribe if you can, and don't forget to share this episode with anyone who might be interested. Above all, thank you for listening everyone. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. This was Henry Hudson, Voyage 4, Part 9, Base Landers Against the Master. Goodbye.